big knot here. We'll just uh, put it back here. How's everybody doing today? Great day, huh? Okay. I know you guys have big plans today, um, but we want to we wanna take this in, right? So let's go for it. Okay, 1 Corinthians 10. And if you have a blue Bible, um, not like mine, if you find the page number, tell me. 929. You just won the sword drill. I'll have a prize next time, okay? <laughs> okay. 1 Corinthians 10. I'm going to be, begin reading at verse 23. Um, I was thinking about this even today when, during worship, Scripture was read. These are the very words of God that we're taking in. And uh, by all means, you're going to sit for my words. But at Crossroads Bible Church... We stand for God's word, okay? So please stand for the reading of God's word. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. Now, why would a question be raised? What's the topic at hand? This is about eating a certain kind of meat. What kind of meat? There you go. Meat that's been offered or sacrificed to idols. So, Paul says... If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice in a pagan temple, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of, your, of the conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I being denounced because of something I thank God for? So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow me as I follow Christ. All right, this is God's word. We can be seated. I'm just going to warn you right now. You may be more confused when you leave than when you came on this whole subject, okay? Because Paul's confusing. And I worked and worked at this thing. Um, and I'm, I, I'll be honest, I'm still confused by what Paul's trying to say here. But let's dive into this. Chapters 8 to 10... Paul is now dealing with another question that the Corinthian church has asked him about. What is it? Can we eat meat that's offered to idols? Boy, that's really relevant, isn't it, to us today? But listen, the question is really much broader. Here's the question, and this does apply to us. How are Christians 
to live in a pagan world. How are we to live in such places as Corinth? Now, the New Testament assumes something. It assumes it. It assumes that when a person trusts Christ, that they are not to run to the hills, circle the wagons, so they can escape this bad, awful world and wait for heaven. And see, Christianity has sadly turned into this escapist religion where we use our faith in God's as a means to escape the world. And then eventually we're just going to escape it completely and, and go off to heaven. Jesus told his disciples, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. And how did the Father send Jesus? Jesus left heaven. He came to this world. He went into the world. And then he says, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. This is why Peter says, he says, we are to live such good lives. Not in the hills or circling the wagons. Live such good lives among the pagans so that they may see your good deeds and praise God. And boy, that sounds awfully close to Jesus when he says you are a city set on a hill, the light of the world. Now, Corinth was as pagan as they come. I told you about uh, the big temple on the hill to Aphrodite where the thousand priestess prostitutes uh, served the worship of that god and that, that hill just uh, cast its shadow over Corinth. I told you about Apollo, uh, which was quite the same except not being on top of the hill but being right there on Main Street. And, and rather than just even having uh, priestess prostitutes, it had, it had little boys where you could come and, and uh, just this made Corinth uh, the pedophile gay tourist center of the world. And see, what we don't understand either is that the worship of these gods in these temples, it was through pornea, having sex with a temple prostitute. This is how you enjoined yourself to the god. And so this kind of practice, it wasn't just accepted, but it was actually expected because the people in that day were highly superstitious and they lived in constant fear of offending the gods. And, and, and the Greek historian Pausanias, he wrote in his travel memoirs about Corinth, he said in the central agora, which would be their, their marketplace, their shopping mall, he says there were temples to Apollo, Dionysius, who's the god of orgy, Artemis, who's the god of fertility, Bacchus, who's the god of party, Poseidon, who's the god of the sea, Zeus, who's the lord of all the gods. All of these temples are right down in the heart, in the marketplace of Corinth. So what's the issue here? Well, we don't live in a world with temples anymore, so it's hard for us to know the huge place that a temple played in a person's everyday life in the ancient world. 
And, and first of all, what you need to know about these temples is that they were the most spectacular buildings in the world. I mean, they were built in, in the heart of the city or at the top of hills like the Acropolis. So everybody could see their glory because this is how you declare to the world how great the God is. And see, more than just being impressive buildings, you need to know that these temples offered life in the most practical, tangible ways. So if a person was hungry, they offered free lunch and free water. They provided housing for travelers and the homeless. Oftentimes they provided free medical care. Oftentimes they provided free asylum. Many of them acted as banks where you could exchange your money. Many of them sponsored theaters and put on free plays. Why? This is how they told the world how great Apollo is or how great Aphrodite is. And so the temple also became the meat market. This is where almost all the meat in that day was processed. Because it would first be taken to the, to the temple where it would be offered as a temple sacrifice. Because that meat would first go to the, 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 the priests that served in that temple. I mean, those thousand priestess prostitutes had to have food to eat. Then all the leftovers would be brought to the marketplace and sold there. And another thing that you need to know about meat in that day is only the wealthy ate meat. Because only the wealthy could afford meat. But you had those special holidays throughout the year uh, to the various gods. For instance, take the Roman god Saturn. Saturn was celebrated on December 25, which is our day for Christmas. Well, the whole Roman Empire would celebrate Saturn on December 25. And if you're wondering, did this include wreaths and gift giving? Absolutely. In fact, evergreen trees would be cut down and put in in places as phallic symbols. And... All of this, too, would produce all these sacrifices in the temple, which on these days, oftentimes, it was free meat for everybody. So if you were poor, this might be the one time of the year where you get to eat meat. Now, I don't know what you think about all this, but I just dropped my notes. (laughs) Did you guys see that or not? You're like, when's Rod going to notice? I know. (laughs) What do you do? Is this a big deal to you if you live, if you're a Christian in, in Corinth at this time? Do you eat the meat or do you refrain from the meat? See, this is the struggle. I'll give you a good modern day equivalent. Halloween. I mean, Halloween is, is, is getting out of control these days. I don't know if you noticed it. Um, I remember when we lived in Chicago, this was years ago. I mean, this was the holiday. And Bennett was three at the time, and I just thought, man, I'm really excited to take Bennett trick-or-treating. Well, we go to our first house right next door to our house, and 
I should have known just by looking at his, his front yard, which is a total graveyard with all these, like, and then, it, I mean, it was just out of control. I'm like, are you kidding me? You're wasting all your money on this stuff. And then we come to the door, knock, ring the doorbell, trick or treat, and, and the dad comes to the door in this just obnoxious monster deal. And he had this button that he could push that sent blood dripping down his whole face. And here's Bennett. Boom, the button gets pushed and Bennett just cries his eyes out. Yeah. You guys know what it is. You guys know Halloween. What do you do with it? I mean... Do we pull out? I know people in our neighborhood, and, and, and in our neighborhood, this happens to be probably the most social day of the year. There's one house, though, where you go to, and they're Christians, and the lights are out, and the sign is on the door, we don't celebrate Halloween. What do you do? See, the, Christian, the, the, the Christians in Corinth, Halloween is every day, eating Meat offered to idols actually is one of the minor challenges because soon in, in, in the Roman Empire, um, emperor worship is going to take off. Caesar is going to claim to be son of God, lord of lords, king of kings, supreme lord and God over the whole pantheon, and he's going to be demanded that he's worshipped. And then what's going to happen is one of the expressions in which you're going to... Ha- offer your, your, your worship to Caesar is every time you enter the, the agora or the marketplace, you start by offering incense to Caesar to say, Caesar is Lord. And then you'd get the mark on your forehead or on your wrist. Some thinks it was part of the incense itself or, or, or an ink spot that would put on, on your head and on your, on your right hand. And then you could enter the market and then you could participate what do you do? See, this is what Revelation 13 is describing. And Revelation 13 isn't just a book written to future Christians. It's written to the church in the first century. And John says, the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. That beast is Caesar. If you don't worship the beast, you're going to be killed. And he forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could buy and sell. And they could not buy and sell if they did not have the mark. I want us to feel the gravity of this issue. Because who knows, we may be having to feel these issues more and more in our day. And these are the kind of uh, challenges that our, that our brothers and sisters faced in the first century. They're, they're challenges that some of our brothers and sisters face right now in different parts of the world. And, and the answers to these questions are not just easy black and white answers. The issues are complex. The answers are complex. And the stakes are so high. Because not only is one's walk with Christ at stake, but... Our witness and our testimony to the world is at stake, and lost people are at stake. 
So take Halloween. Do we just pull out? Do we turn the lights out? Do we go somewhere else? And what message does that send? Or do we stay and do we participate? And then what message does that send? And so I want you to understand that this meat offered to idols is a, is a really complex issue. And in chapters 8 and 9, Paul addresses this from an in-house perspective. He treats this as a family issue, Christian to Christian. And he doesn't just give a simple do and don't. He impacts this. He says, what's an idol? Come on, what's an idol really? It's nothing. It's a figment of the imagination. And then he says in verse 8, what's food? Paul says food has no properties in it that makes us more or less spiritual. So this is what Paul encourages. He says, I want you to feel free to eat the meat unless it causes another Christian brother or sister to stumble. That's all spelled out in chapter 8, 9 through 13. And again, what he's doing is he's balancing our freedom with our responsibility. One person might feel free to eat meat offered to idols, but he's saying don't abuse that freedom because here's the bottom line. We're not just a bunch of individuals who get to exercise our rights. We are part of a family, and we are to be sensitive to every member of the family. That may may mean that I may feel completely free to celebrate Halloween, but if I have 10 other Christian neighbors who are offended by the fact that I celebrate Halloween, that ought to trump, in a heartbeat, my freedom. Guys, tracking with this. Because, in other words, this freedom in Christ is something that we can abuse. It doesn't mean that we can just do what what we think we have the right to do, but to preserve the unity of God's family, we need to be sensitive to what other people think as well. Now, my goodness, to live this out in a city like West Michigan. Gets real tricky, doesn't it? I may feel very free to have beer with my dinner. But you might not. I may be very free to mow my lawn on Sunday. You might not. Um, I may be very free to send my kid to a public school. I'll just say my whole family, starting with my dad and uh, my, my brother and sisters, I mean, we are the black sheep in our extended family because we send our kids to the public school. They hardly talk to us. They're Christians. We're Christians. What kind of car can a person own? What kind of house can a person live in? And I just remember in my younger days, when I used to feel this stuff, oh, it brought out the worst in me. It still does. But with, with, with Christians who just said, you can't smoke. What did I do? <laughs> I did. <laughs> Where is snow smoking in the Bible, Christians? My dad um, is a strict Sabbatarian. And so today, for instance, our whole family's going out to, to where they live. They have a lake on Mona Lake and boats and sea dews. But I'm telling you, on Sunday, we don't touch them, let alone look at them. 
and, and we used to get in big fights about this, arguments. We'd spar. And I used to conclude that, you know, my dad's just the weaker brother and just go along, went in Rome, do as the Romans do. But I'll tell you what getting older has taught me. In many ways, I was the weaker brother. In many ways, he was right. In many ways, I was wrong. But the bottom line is this. None of us have a right in and of ourselves to just do whatever we want. We are a family, and the family matters. And if we're to be one, we'll understand that and live that. Now, today's text, Paul is going to deal with this issue and talk about it from the perspective of not Christian to Christian, but now Christian to non-Christian in light of our relationship to the pagan world. And look at what he says in verse 23 of our text, in 24. He says, okay, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. Again, he says, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Don't make this about you and your rights. Seek the good of others. How's it going to affect them? And then when it comes to meat offered to idols, he says, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. In other words, don't go to the meat market and do this big witch hunt. And don't ask all these questions. Was this meat offered in the, in the, in the, in the temple as a sacrifice or not? Don't even ask any questions. Just buy it. It's just meat. But then he says, look at what he says, but if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go and whatever is put before you, again, don't raise any questions. But if the unbeliever says to you, hey, I want you to know that meat you're offering has been offered to idols, then what does Paul say? Don't eat it. Because your testimony is now at stake. And again, this is dealing with this broader issue. How is it that we relate to our pagan world? When is it when we fully identify it? And when are those times when we stand against it? Maybe I should ask this question. How did Jesus relate to his his world? You know, when I read the Gospels... I see a Jesus, first of all, who fully immersed himself in his world. He loved his world. He embraced his world. He fully identified with his world. I mean, the Bible says about Jesus, he ate and drank with sinners. They accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. And that doesn't mean he was a glutton and a drunkard. But the reason they accused him of that is because he was hanging out with gluttons and drunkards. And when is the last time someone accused you of that? Again, we run from the world. Jesus embraced it. But Jesus didn't just identify with, 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 with the world. Jesus also stood against the world. I mean, I think of John 8, where this woman who's caught in adultery, Jesus just draws the line in the sand. And to support this woman, he has to stand against her accusers. And he's man. And he stands against them when he stands with this woman. Or how many times does Jesus just blast people? 
Or think about the two times when he goes into the temple of all places and just cleans house. How dare you turn this place, my father's house, a house of prayer, into a den of robbers. Oh, he strongly stands against his world. But not only do I see Jesus identifying with his world and then at other times standing against his world, I also see Jesus rising above his world and transcending it. I mean, I'm thinking of the whole sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it was said this, but I say to you this. Don't live down here. I want you to live up here. It was the cross. Christ lifted up. That is Christ transcending the values of his world. Paul's going to say the same thing. He says, when it comes to the world, there are times when I identify with the world. That's why in the previous chapter, he says, I become all things to all people. I identify with the weak. I identify with the Jew. I identify with the Greek. But then there are clearly things where where, where Paul says, look, we need to stand against the world, like how we do sex and how we do marriage and how we live as singles and widows and how we take care of the singles and the widows. And, And these issues tend to be more black and white. But food here gets confusing. See, I don't think we understand how much food has to do with how much we either identify with the world or how we stand against the world. Because usually where the Christian world and the non-Christian world are going to meet, it's usually going to be around a meal. And so to Paul in chapters 8 and 9, food is no big deal. He says, just don't offend anyone. And i got to be honest, if chapters 8 and 9 is all we had, I'd have a real problem with Paul. Because in light of the Old Testament, a book that he probably has memorized, he's way too lax. I mean, to just say you can eat whatever you want as long as it doesn't offend anyone. Think about the first whole part of the Bible. Food is a very big deal to God. God calls him to a kosher diet. And you talk about asking a people to stand against the world, ask them to eat kosher. And see, kosher isn't just about what a person can and can't eat, but it recognizes that what we eat determines who we eat with and where we eat and the places we go and the things we're allowed to do. I mean, I think people who are gluten-free actually have a small taste of what it means to eat kosher. And see, the whole essence of, of Judaism is... We are a chosen people who are set apart. That's what holiness means. It means simply to be set apart, to be utterly distinct. And Jews understand holiness. They know what it means to be distinct in their lifestyle. They know what it means to be distinctive in their dress. They know what it means to be distinctive in the food that they eat. They know what it means to be distinctive in one's weekly rhythm. Be holy as I am holy. Be set apart. That's why this stuff comes so easy to Jews, because at the core of their identity is they just know they're freaks. They know the world sees them as freaks, and they know they're freaks. But here's the problem. Now, as we get to the New Testament, 
The gospel's going to the world. To Gentiles, to people like us. And now all of a sudden, this being distinct can provide some huge challenges to taking the gospel to pagan places like Corinth. For instance, who's the first pagan Gentile to come to Christ? In the New Testament. Anybody know? Nope. Cornelius. Cornelius. Now, Peter shows up at Cornelius' house, and you need to understand that Cornelius is a, is a Roman centurion. He's a very big deal. He is a celebrity. And maybe one of the biggest cringe factor moments in the Bible is, is when Peter enters the house with this grand declaration to all these uppity-ups who are there, these pagans, and he says, you know what our Torah says? It says that Jews are not to associate with people like you. You people, you goy, you unclean. But here's the deal, guys. Um, God showed me that I should not call anyone unclean or impure. Boy, that's quite an entrance, isn't it? And how did God do that? Well, God, Peter had a dream the night before, and in that dream that was sent by God, God says, all foods are now kosher. And see, what we do at this dream is I think we make this about what Peter is now, as a Jew, allowed to eat. But it has less to do with what a person can now eat, a Jew, but more to do with who Peter can eat with. He can now eat with people like Cornelius. And see, God is removing this barrier, not because kosher diet is bad, but because a greater good. Table fellowship with Gentiles is a greater good than a kosher diet. And so while God brought more freedom to these food laws, I want you to know, eating meat offered to idols is not a gray issue. That, 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 that Paul wants to make it. It's a black and white issue. It's wrong. It's wrong, period. How do I know that? How can I say that? Well, I'll tell you what's going on in the New Testament. This is in the book of Acts. The gospel is now branching out of, of Jerusalem and Judaism, and it's going to the nations, and Gentiles are coming to Christ. And now all of a sudden the question becomes, okay, they're coming to Christ. Does that mean they have to keep, keep Sabbath? Does that mean they need to get circumcised? Does that need, mean that they have to eat a kosher diet? So in Acts 15, there's a council that's called. All the apostles, all the big church leaders, Paul, Barnabas, James, they're all there. And the issue that they're dealing with, in light of the fact that Gentiles are coming to Christ, they're asking, what laws now are Gentiles expected to follow? And what do they come up with? Four. Four requirements. And I find this passage to be one of the most misunderstood passages within Christianity because I think we just now think that obedience to God's Torah for the Gentile is boiled down to these four commandments. Really? Is murder on that list? No. Can Gentiles murder? 
Honoring your parents isn't on that list. Taking God's name in vain isn't on that list. Coveting my neighbor's house and my neighbor's wife isn't on that list. Does that just mean that Gentile Christians, we're just all free? Well, then we say, no, 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 you got to add the Ten Commandments to that, to the four. Well, then what about Sabbath? Sabbath's one of the ten. See, and all of a sudden, being holy and living set-apart lives, all of a sudden, to the Gentile Christian, it doesn't matter. Because for the Gentile Christian, it's all grace. It's all grace. And therefore, it doesn't matter how we live. It's grace. It doesn't matter how we eat. It's grace. It doesn't matter how we use our time. It's grace. It's all grace. Is that how you see it? See, what Christians fail to see is that this whole discussion at the council is premised on the heavy yoke of Torah. Now, my first question is, since when is Torah called a heavy yoke? Moses said, Torah is your very life. The psalmist said, your Torah is perfect. It restores the soul. Torah is the lamp to my feet. It's the light to my path. Now it's a heavy yoke. You bet it's a heavy yoke. Because the heavy yoke is not a reference to Torah itself, but to Pharisaic Judaism, which added layer upon layer of oral tradition, rule upon rule to God's word. And this is what made Torah such a heavy yoke for people. And so what the Jerusalem council said, as it pertains to this heavy yoke, we're not going to put that on them. All this extra biblical stuff that we've added to Torah, we're not going to put that on Christians, but instead we have these four things for Gentile Christians. And what's the first one? You will not eat meat offered to idols, period. And see, I think we read these four sometimes and and, and we just think, wow, God made it so hard for the people in the Old Testament. Boy, he makes it so easy for us. Just four? I'm going to tell you something. These four, in that day, were game changers. It hit Gentile Christians right where it hurt. It made putting faith in Christ incredibly costly. Because everything in their world revolved around either sex or eating. And oftentimes, food and sex went hand in hand. So to now say no to those things and to abstain from those things, it costs you pleasure, it costs you socially, it costs you financially, it oftentimes ostracized you from your families, it hit them right at the core of what it meant to be pagan. I want you to know even Jesus was so black and white on, on meat offered to idols, wasn't he? Where does Jesus talk about it? Guys, I'm not trying to put you down, but we need to know our Bibles. Revelation. 
Jesus talking to the seven churches, uh, to the church of Pergamon. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual adultery. Repent! Or to the church in Thyatira, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that wicked woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of the food sacrificed to idols. Repent! And two times he addresses the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans are who? People who said it's no big deal what we eat. It's just an idol. Who cares? It's no big deal to offer incense to Caesar. Caesar's nothing. Put the mark on your forehead. And Jesus says, Nicolaitans are evil. We're called to be different. Distinct. Freaks. When's the last time Someone called you a freak. For us to just constantly accommodate to this culture, we are totally left impotent to change our world. Because we have nothing to offer our world. It's our distinctiveness in Christ. This is what we offer the world. And this is what ultimately is going to change it. Now, what are our takeaways? Let me start with idols and sex. What if we really abided by the Jerusalem council? What if we really committed ourselves to be pure and to be wholehearted in these two areas? I mean, first of all, just take idols. And what do I mean by idolatry? An idol is anything we worship, anything that we make the supreme importance of our lives. It could be money, it could be pleasure, it could be sports, it could be the whole American dream, it could be a degree. It could be just the plain idolatry of self to make ourselves the object of worship where life is all about me. Look at what Paul says in verses 19 through 22 about this. He says, do I mean that food sacrifice to an idol is anything or that idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table, communion with the Lord, and communion with demons. Not a both and. He says, are you trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Why does he say that? Does God get jealous? How do we know that? Because in the first commandment, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. He's jealous. 
does God have first place in your life right now? In your marriage, in your family. See, I think we need to be ruthless about identifying our idols and we need to be ruthless in forsaking them. And now when it comes to this area of sex, I mean, this one area alone, you talk about an opportunity for the church today to look like complete freaks. Just by pursuing purity. And not indulging in the things our world indulges in. And I'm not even talking about the biggies. I'm talking about all those things underneath that just come into our world that we just accept. I want to end with this. I think Christians have become so minimalistic, especially these days. We minimize Torah. We minimize our commitment to God. We minimize Christ. I mean, that's kind of what, what, what the Corinthians are saying when it comes to commitment. They're just kind of like saying, you know what? Well, we've been baptized and we go to church and we take communion. That's what they're saying in the first part of chapter 10. And Paul's saying, guess what? Your forefathers did communion every day for 40 years in the wilderness. They were baptized. I mean, they had the ultimate baptized when Christ led them to the Red Sea. But guess what? They blew it. They weren't wholehearted. They blew it in the area of sex and idolatry. And what Paul says is, choose to sin, choose to suffer. And if it happened to them, it's going to happen to you too. So here's my question. Where's our commitment today? Are we just churchgoers who've been baptized, who take communion, Does God have our whole heart? Does God have our purity? Does God have our undivided devotion? Is he the supreme love of our life? If it happened to them, it'll happen to us. What about Torah? I mean, why do we treat Treat Torah like it's so irrelevant. Are you kidding me? I love how how Paul starts uh, chapter 10. He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our fathers, our forefathers, were all under the cloud, that they all passed through the sea. These are our fathers. This is our story. These are our people. Moses is our hero. We are the ones who walked through the Red Sea. We're the ones who ate manna in the desert. We're the ones who were led by Christ, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. See, and that's what Paul wants these carnal Corinthian believers to understand, that they're part of the great story of God. Corinthians, he's redeemed you. Like the people of old, he's taken you out of bondage. He's taken you out of Egypt. He's taken you out of Corinth. He's given you exodus from the kingdom of darkness and he's brought you into the kingdom of the sun he loves. See, this is what changes me. 
It's not just having a few doctrines that I believe and a few rules that I follow. It's the story. Because this story tells me who I am. It's not being American that tells me who I am. It's not living in West Michigan that tells me who I am. It's the story. You know what's so sad for me? I've watched it now for 15 years, going all the way back to when I started ministry being a youth pastor. I've watched this generation growing up. They're less than bored. They're depressed. And when are we going to wake up to the fact that they're depressed and they're despairing? You know why? We've given them nothing to get out of bed in the morning that's worth living for. Except to go to the mall and buy the latest brand and go to prom. This is awesome. This is the most exciting thing happening in the world. And we get to be a part of it. But to be a part of it, let's take it in. Let's digest every word of it. And let's live it out with our whole heart. Or it can be like the Corinthian Christians. Let's pray. And God, you know, first and foremost, I preach this to myself. And if I'm extra loud and passionate today, Lord, it's because of the sin in my own life, the complacency. God, continue to open the eyes of our heart to see what an awesome God you are and what an awesome thing you've done in our lives and what an awesome thing you've called us to. And God, may we give ourselves to that and that alone. In Jesus' name, amen.